Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. This special Juneteenth Eve episode features one of my favorite people, Ben Jealous. Ben is the newly elected president of People for the American Way, the former Democratic nominee for governor of Maryland, and the youngest person ever elected to be president of the NAACP. He's a brilliant organizer, a great mind, and has really deep knowledge of American history. It is an honor to welcome him to the show. Well, he was the youngest person ever elected to lead the NAACP, the national organization which is based in Baltimore. And now Ben Jealous will take on another political feat. Today, the Democrat announced that he's going to run for governor in 2018. Today, we come together from all corners of Maryland to send a message to the Republican administration in Annapolis that their time in power is coming to an end. We begin with this morning's top story, the situation in Baltimore, the six police officers facing felony charges in the death of Freddie Gray. This morning, prosecutors may consider a new trial for police officers who could have been involved in Freddie Gray's death in Baltimore. A jury was unable to reach a unanimous verdict in the trial. All six Baltimore police officers charged in the death of Freddie Gray have been cleared. I've been involved in this fight my entire life. I can remember my grandfather, a black law enforcement officer in Baltimore, talking to me about the terror that he lived with afraid that one of his colleagues might mistake him for a threat because he operated in plain clothes. I'm Ben Jealous. I spend every day fighting for justice, fighting to move our nation forward. Sorry, not sorry. Once again, we are sitting at a crossroads in America where we have been reminded that we are on the wrong path by the brutal police murder of George Floyd. And I hear a lot of people saying this feels different, but I'm wondering if you feel that it feels different. I mean, white people at least, you know, said that after Michael Brown, that felt different. And after Rodney King, that felt different. Uh, After Tamir Rice. So what is different about this moment in history? Well, you know, the history of our country reminds us that there are terrible practices that persist for decades and even centuries that ultimately come to an end. And I think we can all feel that we are approaching the end of the epoch of police killing on this country. There, there was a time in this country when most black people who were killed because of, you will, the enforcement of law and of social status by slave masters and, and their employees, the, the overseers. And those were never recorded because we were chattel. And as chattel, our deaths were not recorded, just like the, the killing of horses or cows or pigs were not recorded. Mm. Then uh, slavery ended. And there, was, there were people who believed that slavery wouldn't end right up until it ended. And it gone on for so long. And then beyond that, there were lynch mob killings. Lynch mob killings had happened during slavery. They persisted for about 80 years after the end of slavery. 
and then they ended. There was a time in this country when you could have thousands of people gather in a small town for the purpose of observing a black man being pulled up into a tree by his neck on a rope, body parts cut off, which would later be sold for souvenirs, body lit on fire while he was still alive, photos taken that were then turned into postcards that would pop up and be printed by local printers and pop up to be sold in local shops so they could be mailed off with, you know, handwritten bragging rights to relatives and friends around the country. And yet when the FBI would show up maybe a week later, nobody had any memory of being mm. there, of anybody else being there. Nobody would be prosecuted. The FBI would just you know, ultimately close their case. And then you know, police killings, which occurred during slavery and during the era of lynch mob violence. And let's be clear, law enforcement is implicated in almost every lynch mob killing that's ever happened because they were in the crowd or they turned over the person to the crowd or they, uh, you know, at the last lynching in Anne Arundel County, Maryland, where I am right now, the police chief put no guards on duty the night that the man was taken from his cell and lynched. Anyways, the uh, police killings happened all during the year of slavery, all during the, the year of lynch mob killings. They've happened all throughout our lifetimes. It's easy to feel weary. It's easy to feel like, geez, Amadou Diallo was so long ago. Rodney King was so long ago. And yet here we are. My grandmother, who's 103 years old and the granddaughter of slaves, whose grandparents regaled her with the stories of the end of slavery and walking out of slavery when our grandfather, when he was seven years old and her grandmother, I think, was like five, but they could remember it. And my grandmother, who lived and grew up in the terror and the shadow of lynch mob killings, but joined the NAACP and helped bring about the end of it, said to me the other day, baby, we're going to end this just like we did lynch mob killings. Mm. And it's a reminder that these epics go on for a long time, but they, all, they ultimately can be brought to an end. Now, how are we going to end this, Alyssa, is the, is the big question, right? Yeah. Like, it ain't going to be Donald Trump signing signing you know, right. into, you know, and so then how are we going to do it? Well, it's not going to be Donald Trump. And it's not even going to be Republican governors. I mean, I live in Maryland where I ran against the Republican governor, full disclosure. He's seen as a somewhat of a moderate in his own party. And yet when he was on that kind of, you know, Donald Trump imitating George Patton weird call with the governors the other night where he was like, you know, the president was like, you have to dominate the streets and all that. Our governor, Larry Hogan in Maryland's response was, I agree with everything you said, Mr. President, right? He was recorded saying that. And so that means the federal government's out. Most state governments are out. I mean, maybe Cuomo, maybe Newsom, maybe some, some, some other governors mm -hmm. will do some good mm -hmm. things, maybe Pritzker. And, but that for most of us, that leaves city and county governments. Now, the good news for black people, if you will, and, and for people who are eager to see like that spectacle ended of black people being killed by the cops is that we're concentrated in urban areas. And so half of black folks live in 20 metros mm. across the country. 75% of black people live in 100 metropolitan areas, a combination of cities and counties that clustered together. And so it was the new president of people for the American way. My focus in this with our network of young elected officials, 1,300 across the country, black pastors, 2,500 across the country, and a multiracial, multi-generational group of more than a million activists, is let's go push and get the laws and reforms passed in the 20 metropolitan areas where half of black folks live. And secondarily, let's focus on counties and cities in general, because we can make the change happen there. We can make it happen quickly. And frankly, President Obama was right last week 
when he said this is an issue primarily for the cities and the counties. We've got to, all policing in this country is local, and we've got to change the way that policing operates in the cities and the counties, frankly, who employ these officers. And so that's where I'm hopeful. I believe that, you know, the country's convictions have caught up with its mores, that we are at a place where we don't just believe that it's wrong, but we're really clear that it has to end. Yeah. And we have the power to change it in our communities. And if we change it there, we can get most of the problem under control pretty quickly. And there is a a movement that's building really quickly to defund police departments in favor of community-led crime prevention and reduction efforts. If you have been attending or watching the last couple weeks of protests sparked by the death of George Floyd, you may have noticed something. Defund the police! Defund the police! This system of policing has got to go. Our commitment is to end our city's toxic relationship with the Minneapolis Police Department, to end policing as we know it. I got to tell you, when I first heard or saw the hashtag defund police, I was like, wait a minute, what, what, what? But in the last week, I have done a lot of of research on what that means, and I've, I think, think I've turned around. I've turned a corner where I'm like, you know what? Yeah, no, let's defund the police. (laughs) So I'm wondering what you think of that movement. You know, I think that it's an important tension, right? We've got a negotiation, if you will, that's going to have to happen in the mind of American voters. Mm. And, and, And American voters have been pulled to the right inexorably by police unions making very passionate arguments for ultimately for very authoritarian and draconian approaches to public safety. And at the same time, um, you know, if you, if you like, you know, watch like a Michael Moore documentary, like for instance, who do we invade next? And you look at the quote unquote cutting edge approaches to public safety in Europe. And you say to them, where'd you get these crazy ideas? They'll say, Oh, from your country in the 1970s. Right. Right. So, so, you know, what's old is new again in many ways. And then Mm. you look at the success of men and women who've grown up on the streets, thinking about the violence interrupter movement in this country, who have shown again and again, whether it's my buddy Kay Bain, who I've known since he was 14 years old, who leads 696, which is a a violence interrupter group in Queensbridge Housing Projects in New York, where Nas grew up. It's one of the largest housing projects left in this country. Typically a very violent place. He's brought it down to zero killings in most years now. And now the NYPD in that area, when you talk to them, as I have, will tell you, you know, these guys are better at stopping the next killing than we are. They're actually much better. And then you have this movement saying defund the police. And I think that's pulling uh, it's sort of like the opposite pole, if you will, in the debate in the town square of our nation of what the police union's putting forward. Ultimately, we're going to end up, I believe, in a place where we are going to embrace a lot of effective alternatives to cops for various social problems, whether it's violence interrupters for stopping the next killing, whether it's social workers for dealing with addicts, whether it's housing for dealing with the homeless, because our officers have been yeah. quite frankly, asked to solve kind of every um, tough so- social problem that, that isn't being solved adequately elsewhere. And we're going to, I think, find ourselves with police appropriately focused on murderers, burglars, rapists, you know, the most dangerous people in our society. My family 
still rooted in West Baltimore, not far from the public housing projects where my mom grew up. There's a lot of folks there who are very clear that they need police officers to deal with the high rate of home invasions and the high rate of murders. They're also clear that those police aren't worth much to them unless they're working for them, unless they're in their community, as they would say in England, with their consent and operating in a way that is supportive and nonviolent, certainly towards everybody who is not a real danger to society, you know, who's not actively trying to kill people or break into their home or sexually assault them. And that's a much more constrained role for police in our society, and I would say appropriately so. Vangelis, you've been uh, working on uh, recommendations for reforming the Baltimore Police Department. Could you talk about what some of the recommendations are that you've been making? Yeah, the first one is that we got to fire more bad cops. The second one is, is that we have to stop imposing a gag order on victims of brutality. The bottom line is that we got to increase trust. I spoke to Mayor Tubbs the other day about this. It resonated because what he said was is that we need the activists on the ground fighting for defunding the police. That's not a winning political slogan, and that's why we need the activists on the ground. So if you're trying to, like someone like Joe Biden or the entire Democratic Party who has come out and said, well, we're, we're not into defunding the police, but we, you know, I I get how that is not the way that you're perhaps going to win votes, but it does not mean that's something that activists shouldn't be actively pursuing and and bringing up and bringing into the conversation because it's it's true why are we sending people with guns to deal with uh you know a rape victim or to collect rape kits or to a school yeah let's re let's rethink this let's reimagine this let's take the excess of the police budget and reallocate it into the community and really try to level the playing field. Something's got to change. I just started reading the the new Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander and and you know I know the things in there and I know that it shouldn't surprise me but they do you know they shock me and it's just that I'm shocked is a nonstop reminder of my own privilege and I'm I'm wondering if you could just give my listeners a rundown of how the criminal justice system has been perverted to basically perpetuate systemic racial oppression. Well, yeah, let's just start for for a second. All right. Your family is Italian and a good friend, Len Riggio, who the founder of Barnes and Nobles as we know it, he bought it when it was a bookstore too. He turned it into to the empire. Founder of GameStop. A big funder of racial justice causes. And I said to Len, you know, why? Like, why are you so invested in the black civil rights movement? And he said, Ben, because I'm old enough to remember when Italian-Americans like me were the second most frequently lynched group in this country. And so we have to start there. 
like to really understand while black folks have been at the epicenter since slavery of this hate machine of this murderous you know approach ultimately to maintaining a social order we've never been the only group right native americans obviously always at the epicenter too chinese americans mm. railroad workers frequently lynched as well in the in the 19th century in the early 20th century jews as well and i think it's just important to kind of call the role because when you look at the stats on say black men in and uh police killings and, and you know you name the community you'll they see things like oh black men are two and a half times more likely to be killed by the police but you're like wait a second that means other people are being killed by the police too right <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and so and, and i offer that to say that the you know as an organizer one of the things that is taught is to make sure that if people are at risk even if they're at a lower risk they understand that they're at risk too and what we've seen with this authoritarian policing on our video screens, you know, phones, TVs, computers for the last couple of weeks has reminded us that ultimately everybody is at risk. You, know, you see a 75-year-old white man pushed down in the street by an mm. officer, a peace activist, mm. blood coming out of his ear. You know, a young white woman goes to approach an NYPD officer and throws her to the ground. She hits her head. His supervisor's right behind him in a white shirt. He, he doesn't stop to help her either, or even appear to reprimand the officer. Mm. You know, on top of all of the black men, all of the black women that we've seen, you know, the young Latino activist being maimed by a rubber bullet, you know, to the soft tissue on his face. And I say that to say that, yes, we are dealing with a scourge of racism that has its roots in slavery, law enforcement agencies that many, in many parts of this country began with slave patrols and the mindset has never shifted. In Los Angeles, you know, there's a there's a great kind of gritty documentary called Bastards of the Party about sort of the the origin of street black street gangs in Los Angeles, the sort of dominant role and sort of mindset played by the Black Panther Party uh, in seeking to evolve them into a political force that falling apart because of FBI interference and the counterintelligence program and then the rise you know in their wake and part of that is a reminder that the black street gangs in los angeles actually started off as community defense mm. from from uh white gangs and also from white officers who were intentionally recruited from the deep south recently the plain view project did a review of the social media posts of police officers across the country and the findings are already making waves. This morning, the Philadelphia Police Department under fire. 72 of the city's police officers taken off the streets and placed on administrative duty under investigation for allegedly posting offensive and racist statements on social media. The Facebook posts in question contain discriminatory opinions. If our country was all Caucasian, the homicide rate would drop 70%. Perhaps we should be very suspicious of all Muslims in this country, said another. Or encourage violence. It's a good day for a chokehold. Yeah, your reaction is right. Imagine seeing that, the police posting, it's a good day for a chokehold. So even in a place like California, which is far from, say, Mississippi, you had officers intentionally brought there from Texas, from Louisiana, from Oklahoma, uh, to police Black people who were 
moving from those same areas, seeking a better life and greater employment, only to find that the officer from the town they just left had just been hired by LAPD. Right. And so, you know, the the tentacles, if you will, of the legacy of slavery into every corner of this country's law enforcement culture is profound and it's real. And what you've seen with mass incarceration is that there have been two spikes in our society, one at the end of slavery and one at the end of segregation. And that in each instance, mass incarceration appears to have been used as a means of social control, targeted primarily at black men, and then ultimately in its wake, increasingly black women uh, each time for a country that was sort of caught, if you will, by surprise that their old way of controlling black men and black women uh, was, you know, about to be eviscerated by social movement, first the end of slavery, then the end of segregation. Bree Newsom Bass tweeted this morning, slavery wasn't abolished, it was reformed. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's more true than you might realize. In as much as every time we pass a major piece of civil rights legislation, uh, or there's a major court decision, it takes decades to enforce. I mean, you can look at Brown versus Board of Education, right, which ended segregation, and yet, you know, I'm sure within 10 miles of where you live and your listener lives, there's a school that's almost entirely black or almost entirely brown or almost entirely white. And so here we are, right, still struggling with the great decision of our parents' lifetime, not fully enforced. Well, the last chattel slavery plantation had been in existence as long before the Civil War that the NAACP was involved in shutting down, I believe, was 1946. Other academics say that one was founded in the 1950s. The NAACP and the FBI worked together to identify and shut down slave plantations every decade of our existence for our first 35 years. And we picked up the baton from people who have been working on it for, you know, 45 years before that. So that's about 70 years of shutting down slavery plantations. And that's not covered in in any movie, right? Every movie is the experience like my grandmother's grandfather had, every walking into slavery and it was over. It's not quite how it happened. So you can imagine that, that if 80 years after slavery, was officially ended, plantations were still in existence, it helps you understand the mindset that was going on. And so, yeah, they went from chattel slavery to wage slavery. Some people found themselves in even more dire straits. was the same in most instances was law enforcement. Law enforcement has lagged even further behind. You know, you see it, I think, with the revolution we've begun to see in progressives becoming prosecutors. uh, And all of a sudden, the prosecutor's office like catches up on 50 years of evolution in American values in like a week. We need a similar thing where when it comes to all levels of law enforcement, sheriff's offices, judges, uh, people who have values uh, of inclusion and who believe in civil rights begin to take over those roles too. If you only leave yeah. the tough jobs to, frankly, the most backwards thinking members of our society, well, I guess we shouldn't be surprised with, with the formula that we've created. I mean, how how much does Donald Trump being a complete racist shit show of a president change really the way that we're responding now to systemic racism? Well, it's not just the racism. It's the racism and the authoritarianism. Right. If you listen to Phil Goff, formerly of UCLA, now at the John Jay School of Criminal Justice in New York, Probably the country's maybe the world's preeminent expert in police killings. 
his research suggests that when it comes to somebody being killed by the police, whether or not the police officer is authoritarian may be even be more important whether they're racist. And with Donald Trump, when he's putting out this call to, to dominate the streets and blah, 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 he's appealing to people's authoritarianism as much as he is to their racism. And that's very dangerous. You know, according to Goff's research, the, mo the most common word uttered by a civilian before they're shot by a police officer is the epithet for gay men that begins with an F. You insult an officer's masculinity and maybe the most suicidal thing you've ever done in your life. Mm. Uh, Phil's research, you know, get per permission from police officers to test them, uh, their bias, like, you know, implicit bias study type test. Uh, and then also what he calls aggressive masculinity, which I think, because there are some women who behave this way too, mm. <laughs> it's probably more appropriately called authoritarianism, but either way. And I remember watching it with John Conyers years ago, watching video recordings of Phil's tests. And one officer was basically like Archie Bunker with a badge and a gun. You know, he was like 60 years old. Uh, he tested off the charts on being racist, but very low on being authoritarian. He was confronted, you know, he was holding a Glock that had been modified to be wired to a computer, no bullets, so if you pull the trigger, it registers with the, with the computer. And then he was confronted by a black actor portraying a homeless man who's mentally deranged, wielding a large stick, like a baseball bat type object mm. that could do you real harm. Well, Archie Bunker, if you will, Officer Bunker talked that man down in three and a half minutes and never pulled the trigger. Mm. Then there was a young officer, you know, who uh, very low on bias, very high on authoritarian, like friends were probably a rainbow of people, but man, you were going to do what he told you to do uh, or there would be consequences. He shot the actor in 15 seconds. Wow. And that explains yeah. why a lot of young black guys, including myself, some of our toughest experiences have been with black officers. Because that mindset, it's not just like, like self-hatred. It's just literally authoritarianism. You know, he might be pro-black all day long. But man, if you don't do what he says, he's going to beat you up. And so, you know, we have to think about that. I remember being with Reverend Jackson. We were in Rockford, Illinois. Little girls were literally losing their hair because uh, in their church daycare, a man had been summarily executed by a police officer, basically for running away from the officer when he wanted to talk to him. And the man had sought refuge in the church because that officer was the officer in town who had shot multiple people. Everybody knew it. And he was terrified of him. And he hid in the closet and the officer ordered him out of the closet and the officer shot him multiple times. Though every child would tell you the man's hands were totally over his head. And the officer just loaded him full of bullets right in front of these little kids. Mm. And we get done with the mass meeting, and this woman who, you know, 75-year-old, so a white woman who had explained she was a public school teacher and had taught many of the officers at the local police station, she said, yeah, Mr. Jealous, I just want to leave you with one thought. She said, when I go down there, I don't see the boys who were bullies in my classes. I see the boys who were bullied. Mm. I was talking to Savante Myrick, who's a young black mayor of Ithaca, New York, and you know, obviously has a lot of smart people in that town's full of Cornell University and the like. And they've been using personality tests there to recruit officers for six years, and 75% of the officers who pass every other test, the fitness test, you know, all the other skills tests, fail the psychological examination. And what they're doing... Is they, is they were weeding out officers. It's a friend of mine who's in law enforcement put it. So what the psychological tests, what they do is they empower us to find the people with a heart for service, 
and weed out the people with a spirit for adventure. Mm. And that's who we need. We right. need people who will serve. We're recording this on June 11th, the day that Trump announced that he would hold his first rally in months on Juneteenth in Tulsa. Tulsa was the site of a terrible massacre of black people in 1921. It was a horrific time for our nation. It's American history. It's Oklahoma history. It's, a, it's the history of the city. An event so terrible, many history books have shamefully left it out. I was surprised to learn how much my kids did not know. They're talking about the 1921 Tulsa Race Riot, or as many know it, the Tulsa Race Massacre. This was our nation's worst race riot. Michelle Brown is with the Greenwood Cultural Center. Her office sits on the very spot where nearly 40 acres of vibrant, prosperous property was destroyed, and at least 300 innocent African Americans were senselessly killed. It's a repulsive, violent act that is still affecting lives today. Can you tell us a little bit about that terrible event and what it says about Trump that he he would do this? So in the 1910s, in the early 1920s, there was a forced migration of Black people from Oklahoma. There were a series of cities that were attacked by white mobs and burned to the ground, residents shot and hung and raped and terrified into moving. These towns were free Black towns. If you saw the movie Rosewood, it was about a town in Florida, but very similar things happening in Oklahoma at that time. And... uh, that have been going on for years, at least three or four years before Tulsa. Tulsa was the crown jewel of blacks in the Midwest. It's the heart of the black community in Tulsa in 1921 was known as Black Wall Street. There were bankers and very successful business people and a real concentration of wealth. And mobs came in, burned it to the ground, raped women, shot men, Planes flew in with tar that was flammable to pour over the street to help the the flames that were already burning on the ground spread further faster. Mm. Uh, The historian John Hope Franklin, his father had just moved to town as a lawyer and would stay in Tulsa and would operate for years after that riot in a Red Cross tent as they rebuilt. It is perhaps the, the most famous destruction of a black community, murder of a black community, mass rape of a black community from 1920 forward, certainly in this country. Now, Donald Trump really tries to take the worst of the Ronald Reagan playbook to the next level. And what I'm sure his advisors know is that Ronald Reagan's 1980 campaign was launched at the Neshoba County Fair just down the street from Philadelphia, Mississippi. 16 years earlier, in 1964, three civil rights workers, two white, one black, two Jewish, one Christian, were lynched in Philadelphia, Mississippi, Cheney, Goodman, and Schwerner. And Reagan went to Neshoba County to give a speech on states' rights. I believe there are programs like that, programs like education, others that should be turned back to the states and the local communities with the tax sources to fund them and let the people choose the problem. 
I believe in states' rights. At the Neshoba County Fair, where all of the, the statewide, the winning statewide races since the end of Reconstruction have been launched, all of them white, the closest thing to a kind of mainstream white supremacist gathering in American politics, to, to launch his presidential campaign in 1980. Mm-hmm. So here we are 40 years later, and Donald Trump, who is like the worst of Reagan's DNA, you know, pushed into this this P.T. Barnum Frankenstein, is going to Tulsa to try to one-up his hero. What Reagan was doing in that moment was trying to call all of those straight-ticket Democratic voters who were frankly a hateful bunch, who resented the civil rights movement and the way to change their society, who were sympathetic to the White Citizens Council, to, to dog-whistle them in to the Republican Party and break them of the habit of voting for Democrats, even as the Democrats had in, embraced civil rights. And in that part, and that way, Reagan was expanding the Republican vote by bringing in the old Dixiecrats uh, into the Republican Party and that Goldwater had started. And so now you have Donald Trump, who's going to try to inflame racial tension on Juneteenth, not let Juneteenth be what it's supposed to be, which is the great celebration of black freedom and a time when undoubtedly people will be talking about George Floyd and Brianna and Ahmaud and so many others, but rather make the discourse all about him and his hate. He's desperate. He sees his polls are low and his hope to win is frankly to get every possible bigot to, to turn out. And that's why he's doing this. That's my best guess. And do you think that he thinks that there's going to be counter protesters there? Oh, sure. I mean, you are, this is uh, the equivalent of organizing a Klan rally right. uh, at, at a black church during a funeral. <sighs> I mean, it's just unfathomable that anyone could be so blatantly horrible. And breaking overnight, President Trump announces his first rally since the pandemic is getting a new date. The announcement came early this morning on Twitter. The reason for the delay of the rally in Tulsa, Oklahoma, Juneteenth. Juneteenth takes place on June 19th and celebrates the emancipation of slaves. But the Trump campaign rally was also originally set for June 19th. That led to a lot of controversy and criticism. I want you to just shift gears a little bit and maybe help my listeners understand some ways that Juneteenth can be observed today. What can we do? How would you recommend that non-Black people who want to observe or recognize Juneteenth do so without appropriating the history and culture of Black Americans? Like, what is the best thing for white people to do for Juneteenth? Well, I think go to a Juneteenth celebration. Yeah, Juneteenth, um, yes, it's of special importance to to my community, to black people, every Juneteenth celebration is open to the entire to the entire community. And if we're honest, really should be celebrated by the entire country. As Dr. King said, we are all interconnected uh, in a single garment of destiny. And the ending of slavery by law, which as I said, took decades, if we're honest, to end completely in practice, chattel slavery, ultimately was you know, something that's worthy of celebration for every American of every color, whether your ancestors were even in the country at the time 
that it, and it's, I would encourage, encourage everybody to go to Juneteenth celebrations. They're often a lot of fun. You know, it's, it's kind of the first big party of summer in lots of places. And they, um, uh, and they all have a very kind of interesting local history often, you know, because the word spread in kind of different days throughout that week, different parts of the South. Um, I would also encourage folks to, to read, you know, to, to really understand uh, our history more, more di- deeply and to just kind of lean in and wrestle with all the questions that have come up for so many of us in these times. My parents, who are both activists turned therapists who have remained activists, have created two resources I think are actually uniquely valuable. My dad, who if you're ever passing through Monterey, California, and there's a protest over a police killing, and you see a white guy holding a sign saying, they rarely shoot old white guys like me. That's my father's favorite sign. Um, that's my oh. dad, Fred Schellis. Oh. <laughs> and my love mom, him. Yeah, no, he's cool. He's very plain spoken. He's been involved in the civil rights movement since he was a high school student in Maine in the 1950s. Wow. Um, and, uh, and my mom, who's been involved in the civil rights movement, was really born into it, really actively involved since ever since she sued her high school when she was 12 so she could desegregate it when she was 15. Pretty intense woman and jealous. Well, my mom wrote a book called Combined Destinies, Whites Sharing Grief About Racism. She and a white therapist wrote it together or won a National Independent Book Award a half dozen years ago. Combineddestinies.com is the website. And it's 53 stories like my father's. My father lost his inheritance when he married my mom. Obviously, there was some grief over losing his, his relationship with his grandfather and his uncle and so many of his cousins and losing, frankly, uh, the source of economic stability he had grown up with. You know, they include the stories of a man who would go on to be one of the white founders of SNCC, but when he was a child, his father was a Klansman and, and a Methodist preacher and murdered a black man in front of him, sh- shot a black man dead in front of him when he, he was uh, eight years old. And then his father had a nervous breakdown trying to reconcile the teachings of the Ku Klux Klan, the teachings of Jesus, and ultimately Jesus won out, and his father would, would then lead his family into the civil rights movement as allies in the early 1950s, and wow. the son would go on to be a co-founder of SNCC. And so there's great stories in there, combined Dusty's white chair and grief about racism. My father's group uh, of kind of grumpy white men who go intervene with judges and so forth when they feel like young black boys are being mistreated in Monterey County, California, it's called Whites for Racial Equity, and they have a whole group. They have a whole set of resources on their website, which is simply whitesforracialequity.org, where you can find all kinds of things that are worth reading and kind of reflecting on. Specifically relevant, I'd say, to white people, folks who are just generally who are, who are not black, who are sort of trying to figure out how to be better, better allies. You were the youngest president in in the history of the NAACP. I'm wondering, was there anything uh, that surprised you when you took that job about organizing or about how, you know, Americans respond to black-led organizations? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I don't think I've been been asked it. I grew up in the NAACP. I'm a fifth-generation member. 
And yet what I never really internalized was the profound moral authority that the organization carries because it was founded by the children and grandchildren of abolitionists mm. to continue their work. It was founded in a moment very much like this uh, when blacks were run out of Springfield state capital of Illinois. And uh, in a year, the centennial of the birth of their most favorite son of Springfield, uh, President Lincoln. And so because of that, I think for those for those two reasons, because of the role of the descendants of abolitionists in starting the organization and because uh, of the role of the organization in bringing the country back from the brink of a return to being something like we were before slavery as far as racial hostility. Today we'll be learning more about the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, or NAACP. In 1908, a violent two-day race riot in Springfield, Illinois, drove thousands of African Americans from the city and resulted in the destruction of many minority-owned businesses. This incident proved more poignant as Springfield was the birthplace of civil rights leader Abraham Lincoln. In response, a group of white New York City liberals gathered a collection of prominent Americans with the goal of forming a civil rights organization. In fact, many of the group's leading members were emphatic white or Jewish personalities, and the only black executive at this point was W.E.B. Du Bois. With the group formed, on February 12, 1909, the National Negro Committee was founded to commemorate the 100th anniversary of Lincoln's birth. A year later, they became the NAACP. You know, the organization has accumulated tre- tremendous moral force in this country. And the other thing that, that really struck me, and it was a little bit after I left, you know, we, the Black Lives Matter movement sprung up and I looked at te- on television and I saw these young people like Mayor Tubbs in Stockton, California, but many others are now psychologists and so forth. who were kids in the NAACP. They were teenagers. They were 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19 years old when I was president. And we really raised them on championing the case of the Scott sisters, of John McNeil, and so many other individuals who were being railroaded by the justice system. And then they were part of a much bigger wave of young Black folks, some who had never been raised in the civil rights movement, who built the Black Lives Matter movement. And it was just a, a reminder that the NAACP ultimately is that big old tree in the forest mm. whose very existence supports the ecology of organizations, some which may live on longer, but most of which live for a period of time, whether it's mm. SNCC or the Black Panther Party, both of which had leaders who had been NAACP youth and college leaders, you know, or Congress of Racial Equality, or so many other groups that played their role in American history for a generation. You know, as somebody who grew up hiking through the old forest of Northern California has been up next to a thousand foot redwood tree. That's what the NAACP is and the ecology of racial justice organizations. It's pretty easy to take it for granted. You can look at it and say, oh, it's kind of ugly and misshapen. Um, but man, if you try to imagine life without it, it's, it's, it's a pretty scary thing. Mm. Yeah. That just really gave me goosebumps everywhere. And the tree analogy I think is right. Um, yeah you know, that strength and what it has been able to give to so many um, is really just, it's mind-blowing when you think about it. 
And you've just been elected president of another amazing organization, president of the People for the American Way, which is, you know, just unbelievable. And they're lucky to have you. I, I would be remiss if I didn't say part of the People for American Way's mission is to counter right-wing extremism. And I, I have to tell you, that seems like such a monumental, insurmountable task right now. It just feels like it's everywhere from the NRA to the Federalist Society to QAnon to the InfoWars show. I mean, I feel like the president used the State of the Union to give Rush Limbaugh a fucking medal is just sort of wraps up this entire presidency in one nice little package. So where do you even start as the new president? of people for the American way? Like, where do you start? You start where we are right now, right? We're like less than 150 days from a national election. We got to turn out every last voter. We got to do it in the context of COVID. We got to do it when you can't go door to door most places or most, because, you know, I mean, you got to deal with all that when kids aren't going to be on college campuses, right? So however hard it was going to be, it just got exponentially more complex, the algorithm for turning out voters. And then you have to start with the urgent need for police reform. But we will run a national slate of police reform candidates across this country. We've got 1,300 young elected officials, and we've become quite expert in both encouraging young people to run for office and getting them elected. And what we know is that nothing inspires young people to vote like a young person on the ballot who yeah. represents their, their values and their aspirations. And so we will really run uh, a whole group of folks who are right out of these protests for office across the country, and, and we'll win. And it will, quite frankly, help defeat Donald Trump by boosting the vote in in a whole bunch of places. And what do you think? I mean, what what are things people should be doing right now from their homes to support people for the American way? If you're listening, you've got a moment. Go to PFAW.org, People for the American Way. Just give us your email address. Get involved. We've got great online organizers. They're organizing people across the country to turn out voters. If you got five dollars, please give us that too. It takes, frankly, money from like-minded people to make this all work. We are focused uh, squarely on getting Donald Trump out of office and electing a wave of really inspiring young people all across this country. We have 1,300 young elected officials. That network has produced everybody from Ilhan Omar to Pete Buttigieg and everybody in between. And when you look at these young people, it's hard not to be inspired. One of my favorite, Dana, down in Virginia, trans woman in her 20s who defeated a transphobic man much older for a seat in the Virginia legislature uh, back in 2018. We were both on the ballot at the same time when I was up here in Maryland. One of the exciting things, what really excites me about People for is that we have been intentionally multiracial from the beginning. When you look at our first founders, it was Norman Lear, Congresswoman Barbara Jordan, uh, kind of like the prototype for AOC today, a black, outspoken black woman said she was, you know, um, unbought and unbossed from, from Texas, and Dolores Huerta, uh, who, uh, you know, co-founder of the, of the United Farm Workers, and a group of moderate Republican businessmen who were and they could see what their party was in the midst of becoming and wanted to protect it. Likely all of them would be Democrats by now. <laughs> um, 
But back then, there was still hope that you could hold on to a Republican Party that was inclusive and diverse. And, and in that respect, People for I believe, is uniquely well p- positioned in this moment to pull people together across geography, across race, across gender, and across the generations to really push us to achieve that vision that Frederick Douglass laid out for us. And kind of forget about Frederick Douglass, I believe, at our peril. I mean, here was a man, the most photographed person in our country of the 19th century, great abolitionist turned great civil rights leader, also served in law enforcement, also in an ambassador to Haiti, um, you know, man, you know, also a, a builder, man of great accomplishment, who spent most of his life not just fighting to free black people, but fighting to win the vote for black people, which at the time when women couldn't vote meant black men, and then turned around and said he would not cast a single ballot until women also had the right to vote. Mm. His greatest speeches was his tirade against the Chinese Exclusion Act, which was pushed right after we got the 14th Amendment, which, you know, guaranteed equal protection, but also guaranteed citizenship if you were born here. And he says a lot, you know, including, we didn't go through, and I'm paraphrasing because, you know, if you haven't read a 19th century order recently, it's like reading the King James Bible, like, please paraphrase. And so lots of these and those. But he... You know, he says, uh, we didn't just go through a war to end slavery in the Southeast to stand around and watch y'all enslave somebody else in the Southwest. And then he also said, I believe, you know, he, he, excuse me, he said, every country has a destiny, a unique destiny. Its destiny is based on its character. A nation's character is that nation at its best, not its worst. And if you allow yourself to go up on the balcony of history where grandma lives, <laughs> where you know you can see pretty far in the future, in her case mostly because you can see very far into the past. She's observed um. 103 years of American history, and she inherited even more you know, firsthand told through the eyes of her grandparents and her great-grandparents who had been slaves. And what my grandmother would remind us is, and she'd remind me when we talk, is, baby, it's always darkest before it's dawn. Like just in the natural world tells us a lot about the political world and things always are at the moment of greatest despair right before we break through. And so there's reason to be hopeful in this moment, not just because we can go past police reform legislation like we're going to do at people for the American way, working with coalitions all across this country in cities and in counties and protect most people and most people of color and most black people in the process. Precisely because the right wing is 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 acting the way that a fox acts when acts when you back them into a corner. Yeah. And so, you know, I would say, like my grandma, take heart in the desperate actions of Donald Trump. Take heart in the desperate actions of the far right wing. Understand that it's exactly the fact that we're poised to have such power and influence over the, the next century that scares them. That's why Kemp is fighting so hard to suppress yeah. the votes and keep Stacey Abrams from getting into office. And well, so we just got to lean in and fight with hope. That's what this time feels like to me. It feels like their last gasp of air before, you know, it, it they take their, their, their hate away with them. I, th- I feel like 
those who are uh, the racists and the misogynists and the sexists and the xenophobes. They're all trying to hang on to this way of life that has been literally broken open. You know, this time reminds me so much of, you know, just just the process that I've had to take personally in my mental health and how I've always in my crisis moments, I've broken open, not apart, right? And I've broken open to these moments in my personal life. And that's what it feels like we are going through as a country, in our society. And if we can come out of this presidency and this administration better than we went into it, then it was not in vain. And that's the only thing that's giving me hope right now. What makes you hopeful that things will get better? Honestly, that I get to talk to my grandma every week, if not every day. Uh, and she just reminds me that, uh, that, you know, this is a long game. We're Southerners, and the difference between the South and the North is we always take a long view of history. It's what makes uh, Southerners resilient uh, when they're fighting to move the country backwards, like many of my neighbors do. Uh, and it also is what makes those of us who fight to move the country forward uh, in the tradition of Dr. King um, so so damn resilient too, is that we know that ultimately time is on our side, numbers are on our side, and the future is ours. Well, Ben Jealous, thank you so much for all you do. You give me hope. And thanks for being a part of the podcast. Things are often not what they seem. The story goes, beauty and ugliness were walking along the shore one day. Ugliness says to beauty, let me go take a swim. Beauty agrees. So the two disrobe and dive in the water. As beauty swims around under the waves, ugliness returns to shore without saying a damn word and slips away in beauty's fine garments. When finally beauty realizes she's all by her damn self, being ashamed of her nakedness, she puts on the tattered rags, ugliness left behind. And to this day, there are still those who see the one and mistake her for the other. Things are often not what they see. Coming to terms with our privilege is work. As white people, it has to be ongoing work. If the events of the last month in America haven't shown us that, the events of the last 400 years absolutely have to. We need to divest ourselves of our power. We need to step away from our seats at the table to let others who have been never allowed to sit pull up a chair. Juneteenth is a time of reflection for us. White people, it's time to reflect on our failures and enact plans to correct them. It's why I support reparations for slavery and think now more than ever would be time to enact legislation to provide them. It's time to reimagine 
our entire justice system, which for so long has burned racism deeply into our culture. It is time to end the gerrymandering that takes away black political power to invest in education and infrastructure and housing and health care that works for more than just white people. Now, if you're saying that's too expensive, you're wrong. The exclusion, discrimination, imprisonment, disenfranchisement, and oppression of black and brown people, that's too expensive. And it's a bill I'm sick of paying. Let's do better. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. That's my boy. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe.